first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waith. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. You know, as a certain general, I had to talk about a whole range of issues, Ezra, from, you know, Ebola and Zika to issues like violence and e-cigarettes and smoking. But there was not a single issue that I found resonated as deeply with people as the topic of emotional well-being and more specifically loneliness. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So before we start today on a re-up episode that I'm pretty excited about, I have a not an announcement to make, a pre-announcement to make. Some of you may have heard because it did get announced on Friday that in the new year, I'll be starting at the New York Times. I'll be an opinion columnist there. I will be hosting an interview show. That is not happening the second. I'm going to address it more fully and talk through some of what I've learned here and what I want to say about the amazing time I have had here in, in a future show. So just to preview for now. Um, this show is going to continue having new episodes this year. Um, nothing is changing for the moment, and there will be more on that to come. That said, this week we are off for Thanksgiving. Uh, we'll have new episodes starting on Monday. And I wanted to bring this episode back for a very specific reason. A lot of people are spending Thanksgiving alone this year. A true cruelty of the coronavirus is that it doesn't just attack our health, it attacks our social connections. It attacks not just whether or not we stay alive, it attacks the things that make life worth living. And so many people this year are separated from their loved ones, our grandparents can't see their grandchildren and don't know how many more Thanksgivings they'll have with them. There's a, a deep pain of loneliness throughout the country right now. Vivek Murthy is a former U.S. Surgeon General. He was recently named as co-chair of Joe Biden's incoming coronavirus task force. Um, and he over the past couple of years, he's become focused prior to coronavirus, but, but continuing through it on the health effects of loneliness, of, of trying to get people to take loneliness serious as a public health emergency, trying to make them aware of new medical science showing that loneliness acts on the body like an attack. It is a physical ailment. It is like a disease and that far, far too many people suffer from it. And we often don't know what to do to pull ourselves or each other out of it. So this is an episode we recorded a while back, but I think it's actually much more relevant today than it was when we first recorded it. This is an episode that, among other things, speaks to the secondary effects of coronavirus and a public health crisis that predated coronavirus that has been worsened by it, but also has a hopeful idea at its core 
that sometimes the best thing we can do to help ourselves out of a hole is to help others out of it too. As always, my email is reclineshowadvox.com. Here is Vivek Murthy. Vivek Murthy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Ezra. Great to be on with you. So obviously, my first question is, why did you steal my face? <laughs> like, what, 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 what's happening? I'm staring at you, and it's like staring into a somewhat um, uh, like an Indian mirror. Well, this is a, a surreal moment because I've been hearing for years that we look exactly alike, and now I feel like I'm looking at a paler version of myself. It's extraordinary. It's, it's very strange. You can go, for people who are obviously not here with us on Skype, um, you can actually search our names online and you'll find people putting up side-by-side pictures. It's, I, I didn't know if when I saw you, I would actually think it was true, but I, I, I kind of think it's true. We do look alike. <laughs> it's strange. Before we talk about loneliness as a public health problem, I wanted to talk about it as an experience. Um, I don't think you become the first Surgeon General uh, in the country's history to elevate loneliness as a central issue unless you have some sensitivity to it in your own life or around you. So let, let me start with this, which is, like, for you, what does loneliness feel like? Oh, well, I'll start by saying I've felt lonely often in my life, starting from when I was a child. and continuing at various points through adulthood, including when I was Surgeon General. But the way it feels, it feels physical. Like it feels like a a knot inside me. It feels like a sense of despair. And it feels like I'm going down a spiral, if you will. It builds on itself. And then that is, I think, one of the great dangers of loneliness is because, you know, it makes you withdraw more at a time exactly when you need to reach out and connect with other people. But it, it feels very visceral and often can feel physical uh, as well, like a gnawing uh, sensation that something isn't quite right. My my personal experience of it has always been that it it feels like you're speaking a slightly different language than everyone else. And that like that's what's so deeply alienating about it, that um, here you are having this kind of terrible internal experience. And other people are not hearing what you're saying about it. And often it's because you're not saying anything clear about it. But nevertheless, there's a, a feeling that, you know, if they really saw you, if they really loved you, they would they would be able to see, like they would be able to pick up on the signals you're giving out. And the experience of going through life when that's happening and nobody is responding is a very, like that, I recognize maybe that's not a good description of the feeling of loneliness, but to me, like, that is the experience of it, this kind of, this total lack of translation between your internal experience of the world and what the people who you often expect to be there to catch you are able to pick up. Yeah, I think that's very astute. And I would add on to that and say that loneliness often feels like invisibility. And I have certainly felt that too, in the sense that when I feel the depths of loneliness, it feels like people don't see me for who I really am. Um, but I've interestingly heard this from many other people that I've spoken to around the country who have struggled with loneliness, who walk around feeling that they are not seen and that if they disappeared, it wouldn't matter. Uh, that feeling of both being invisible and inconsequential, uh, I think is a is a hallmark feature of loneliness. But one of the things here that loneliness can sometimes sound like it is a mathematical description of life, that a lonely person is a person without social connection. Something really interesting in what you said on the subject is that you never felt more lonely than a surgeon general. And I'm sure that if I had looked at your life from the outside when you were a surgeon general, all I would have seen is connection, right? I would have seen a full schedule. I would have seen people all around you saying, 
Vivek, you're so great. You look exactly like Ezra Klein. Like everything in your <laughs> life is going so wonderfully. Um, people people want to be around you. You probably have more social engagements than you can possibly say yes to. That it would have looked like loneliness would have been the furthest thing from a problem. Busyness maybe, exhaustion, depression, whatever, but loneliness. So how can it be that at a time in your life when you were probably coming into contact with more human beings than in any other, you were lonely? That is one of the great ironies of loneliness is that it's not an objective state, it's a feeling. And we have so many people in the world today who are surrounded uh, by other people at work and at home even, people who are married and have children and who to all of the world seem like they shouldn't be lonely, but they really are. Uh, for me, I, I did experience a lot of loneliness during my time as Surgeon General. And I, I wanna be clear that it's not because I didn't have good people around me or people who were kind or people who cared about me. I was blessed with that. I would go to communities and I had this incredible privilege of being able to listen to people and have these honest conversations and that felt good. But what I realized I had done in retrospect, Ezra, is I had convinced myself that because this was a rare opportunity and we didn't know how much time we would have when I was in office, that we had to make use of every moment to make as much impact as possible, even if that meant sacrificing time with family and friends on my end. And so that's what I did. Um, I dramatically reduced, not intentionally, but just because I, by default, prioritized work, I dramatically reduced the amount of contact I had with close friends. And even when I was in contact with uh, my closest friends and family, I was often distracted. I had my phone on me. I had my phone near me. It was buzzing. I was thinking about work. I was checking my inbox to see if a message had been responded to. I was worried about whether something uh, had become a problem on social media. And so I was checking social media feeds. I was distracted even though I was physically present. And while that took a toll, I think, on the people around me, it took me a while to realize that perhaps the greatest toll was on myself because I de deprived myself of what I needed, which is the nourishment of close relationships with people who know you and value you for who you are. One of the things that I've observed both in me and in other people I've known is that folks who are due to their upbringing in history or their position or both used to projecting an air of competence and control and okayness. When things begin going wrong internally, they're often not able to actually drop that. It's practiced, right? That the, the, They wouldn't be where they are if they weren't really good. It seemed like everything was going well. And in many cases, there's a fear if you drop any of that, that because you're running an organization or you're the person holding a family together or there's just some set of burdens that you at least believe are on your shoulders, that you know you can't let that crack because then you know what will happen to, to everybody around you but as that happens like then there's this growing sense of, of of anger and frustration that people aren't being able to see the very thing that you are hiding from them and i've watched a lot of people um and at times myself like end up in real mental health issues for exactly that reason because they they have a set of things that is keeping them from showing what is going on, but at the same time, it's very alienating for the people around you not realize that you're suffering. You know, what's really interesting is I think we have convinced ourselves as a culture that vulnerability equals weakness. And that as leaders, that to show vulnerability, which could be expressing doubt or uncertainty or talking about moments of sadness or God forbid, talking about loneliness, uh, will reduce the confidence that people in the organization have in you. And I realize that that's not true. It is the case, certainly, that 
people in an organization want to know that their leader is competent. They want to know that their leader cares about them and that their leader has the strength to rise to the occasion when adversity arises. But that is not incompatible with being vulnerable. And I think that that is one of the, the key things that I had to learn over time. It was actually something that I, I felt we were able to build into our culture, actually, in the office of the Surgeon General. We had a, a bit of an unusual culture, I would say, in the, in the larger department, which is we, we had a culture where people really did um, get to know each other as, as friends, where we had a, a sense of family. But I realized early on, uh, in part through some difficult, challenging leadership experiences I had had when I was young, that the only way to build that kind of culture, though, is to lead by example. Like you can't tell people to be vulnerable and open if you're not willing to be vulnerable and open uh, as a leader. You can't tell people to be honest about where their doubts are so we can fix problems quickly if you're not willing to be honest about those doubts uh, as a leader. Um, I don't mean to say that it was always comfortable for me to do that uh, because I still have many vestiges of the culture in which I was raised, you know, which is a more traditional model perhaps of leadership. Uh, but I do, I have realized not just through my work in office, but by engaging with people around the country and frankly around the world on this issue, that there is a deep hunger for vulnerability and authenticity that people have. And that's why they respond to it. That's why you will find in society that sometimes people will follow and support people even who have dramatically different philosophies and ideas in them. Uh, they will follow people who sometimes they even find uh, morally objectionable if they feel the person is in fact authentic and being honest and open with them. What was the relationship between you personally experiencing loneliness and you focusing on loneliness as a public health epidemic as such a general? Did one precede the other? Did one make you aware of the other? How did those things intertwine? Well, my loneliness started when I was a, a child. I remember going to school uh, as a child and being dropped off by my mother in elementary school and feeling this pit in the, my stomach just in my and everything just kind of twisting up inside because because I was nervous and I wasn't nervous about a test or about teachers. I was nervous about going to school and feeling that I didn't have the warmth and safety and support of my family and realizing that I wasn't connecting with the other children there. You know that that's that feeling has ebbed and flowed throughout life. You know I've had in high school I felt more connected in freshman year of college I felt very disconnected. So it's ebbed and flowed. But as they often say about wounds is whether they're seen or unseen, wounds give us uh, the ability to relate to others. They enhance our capacity for empathy. And I feel in some ways grateful for those wounds because they helped me see something that was right in front of my face when I started my medical career, uh, which was lo the loneliness in my patients. You know, I trained as an internal medicine uh, specialist. So what that means is that uh, I was expecting that the majority of my time in the hospital would be spent treating people with diabetes and with heart disease or the infections and joint problems. And I saw many patients with those conditions. What I didn't know, what I hadn't expected, was that so many of the patients who came to see me would be struggling, in fact, with loneliness. And the first time I encountered it, uh, I remember feeling flummoxed. You know, I remember actually being, it was in clinic. I was at my resident clinic, and this man who I'd never met before uh, came in to see me for the first time. And I looked in his chart and saw that he had high blood pressure and he had diabetes and he was overweight. And he's coming in for a routine checkup. And one of the first things he said to me was, I won the lottery and it was the worst thing that ever happened. 
And he actually was being literal. He didn't actually win the lottery. He had a steady stream of money that was coming into him each year. And before he won the lottery, he was a chef. He worked at you know, a hotel. He was fairly successful. He had a clientele that liked him. He wasn't rich, but he lived in a neighborhood where he you know, knew his neighbors and he liked them. But then he won the lottery and he had no need to work anymore. And so he did what so many of us think success looks like, or at least what we're how it's painted sort of in broader culture, which is, you know, is you don't have freedom. You don't need to work. You know, you can live in a big house uh, in, in a sort of closed office state. And that's what he did. He quit his job. He moved uh, to a, an oceanside town uh, in a gated community. He lived in a big, big house with a huge yard. And it was far, far from his neighbors. And he realized that he was profoundly alone. And soon after that, he developed high blood pressure and diabetes, a number of challenges, whether they were, you know, true, true, unrelated or, or you know, you know, causative, like, you know, it's is not clear. But he became very unhappy uh, as a result of that. And I realized sitting in that room, listening to him speak, that I had no idea what to do. And it was a, it was a startling and, and sobering moment for me, but it wasn't the, the last moment because I had many ex- circumstances like that where I had patients who were who would come to the hospital with severe illnesses and nobody would show up. It would be Christmas day, it would be New Year's Eve, it would be Thanksgiving and nobody would show up uh, for these patients. And I imagined how hard must it be to be dealing with all of these chronic illnesses, to be struggling with poverty. Uh, In some of the cases, the patients I cared for to be dealing with so much discrimination in their lives and to be doing all of that on your own. So this, I think, was, this is how I was introduced to loneliness. And it's what sensitized me to the stories of loneliness that ended up cropping up in so many of the conversations I had when I was Surgeon General. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. There are members of my family who live alone, and loneliness is something I think a lot about for, for them. And they talk about the experience of, uh, as someone who's older, going to the doctor, going in for tests, going into... Um, going into the hospital and having to do that, at least in the instant, like on their own, like having to be in that waiting room on their own and just how much harder that is. And I think about how hard that actually is for me to imagine, right? I'm, you know, married and, um, you know, live in a rich community and I'm lucky for all that. But like the tests are not necessarily uh, (laughs) totally independent of the both psychological and physical state of the person coming into them. And the thing that is really surprising to me about the research that has accumulated on loneliness in the last couple of years is that it is a physical actor. It isn't just a psychological circumstance that loneliness is doing something to the body that then 
potentially is leading to these other health outcomes. You'll hear that loneliness is deadlier than obesity or deadlier than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Can you talk a bit about what loneliness actually does to the body? Like why it is that you would see it as a health issue, not just a psych, not just a sad circumstance in somebody's life? It turns out we feel lonely not by accident, but it's a very deliberate uh, sensation that we've evolved to feel. Like most critical sensations in the body, it alerts us when something that we need for survival is missing. And an analog to this is hunger or thirst. So, you know, we know that feeling hungry isn't a disease. It just tells us that we need more nutrition. Feeling thirsty isn't a disease. It just tells us we need more water. But when those states persist for a long period of time, that's when we run into challenges. If I'm dehydrated chronically, my kidneys may shut down. If I'm hungry uh, for a long period of time, I may become malnutritioned. Uh, it's the same case with loneliness. Now, what is loneliness telling us? It's telling us it's something that we need for survival, which is social connection is missing in our lives. And why is that important for survival? Well, if you think back from an evolutionary perspective to how we lived thousands of years ago, it was actually an evolutionary advantage. It was a survival benefit to be connected to others. If you're out there in the tundra and you're subject to you know, a hostile environment in terms of weather, you have predators that may be after you and you have an unstable food supply, it's actually your connections with others and particularly trusted connections that you can build that allow you to join forces and protect each other, for example, during the night by taking watch you know, around the fire. Uh, it, it's those connections that allow you to pool your food and ensure that you have a stable food supply instead of having booms and busts when it comes to eating. It was advantageous for us to be able to have these trusted relationships when it came to survival. And over thousands of years, that became, became baked into our, into our nervous system, if you will, such that when you were disconnected from the tribe, then that actually puts you in a state of threat. And in a state of threat, what changes is actually your threat perception as well. So if I, for example, take somebody who is used to being in a tribe where there's mutual aid and protection, and I remove them, then they are gonna be more likely to look at things around them as a threat, even if they're not a threat. Because even if there's a 1% chance that the twig that cracked behind me is a predator, I wanna interpret it as a threat because my survival could depend on it. Now think about this when translated to the modern world. When people are, you know, we may, our circumstances may be different. We may hold different devices in our hands, but our nervous systems haven't dramatically changed over the last few thousand years. And so when I feel lonely, the equivalent of being removed from my tribe, you know, from thousands of years ago, then I'm put into that state of threat. Once again, my threat perception changes. The hypervigilance that you referenced earlier, Ezra, uh, develops as well. And so I start to perceive things that may be benign as threats. That could include outreach from other people. It could mean that if I'm feeling like I'm really struggling with loneliness and I'm wary uh, of people around me, if Ezra, if you come up to me and say, hey, Vivek, you want to have lunch? I probably should say yes, but I might think, oh, Ezra's just, he just feels sorry for me. This is pity, or he's mocking me, or he's probably going to say something mean to me afterward. I don't want to subject myself to the risk of rejection and disappointment, I'm just gonna say I'm busy. And as crazy as that might sound uh, to someone, that's actually how loneliness can actually shift our perception. You know? let, me, let me hold that piece of it because the way in which loneliness changes our social behavior and begets more loneliness is very important, but I wanna hold it for a bit later and focus for a minute on just the biochemical dimension here. So you're sitting here, you're in this enhanced state of threat I mean, fundamentally what is happening is your body is under more stress. 
And you see that in autoimmune response. You see that in inflammation, um, as I understand it. And you see it, and this is a one that, like, it, like I read it in Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, and it's in your work too. Uh, and Johan was on the show a while back. The the micro awakenings, the the ways in which people who are lonelier wake up more often during the night. So can you hold there for a minute and just talk a bit about what does it mean for the body to be under this kind of stress? How does it react, not as a mind, but as a body? Sure. So the biology of connection disconnection is, is really fascinating. And, and you can understand a lot of it through the lens of, of stress. So if being disconnected from others uh, puts us in a state of fear or puts us in a stress state, then a number of, of changes happen rapidly within our body. So we may, for example, have a surge in hormones like epinephrine. We may have activation of our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which ends up flooding our body with elevated levels of cortisol and mineralocorticoids. Uh, all chemicals and hormones, which are essentially designed to help us respond to threat by increasing our blood pressure, increasing our heart rate, um, shifting how our immune system actually works and preparing us for uh, adversity and for attack. That is very helpful in the short term. But the problem is when stress states are protracted, because then you go from having a protective benefit to actually destroying the body. So when you have a protracted stress state, levels of inflammation arise. And when that happens, you can start to damage tissues and blood vessels and increase the risk of illnesses like cardiovascular disease. Um, you can actually impair uh, the immune response as well. And this is a fascinating sort of biological story uh, that basic scientists like Steve Cole and John Cassiopo and others studied, uh, which show actually that in, in that loneliness as a state can reduce your immune response, impair wound healing, which is really interesting. And what it can also do uh, you know, is interrupt your sleep patterns. So it, it seems that lonely people who are lonely don't necessarily sleep less in terms of aggregate time overall, but the quality of their sleep is different. So they tend to have more micro awakenings where you don't go as deep in sleep uh, as, as you otherwise would, but you tend to, uh, to have these small awakenings, which you may not remember in the morning, um, but which ultimately impact the quality and the restfulness of your sleep. Now, why does that make sense? Well, again, to go back to our evolutionary model, if you were in a state where you were alone, you had to sleep at some point, but you wanted your sleep to be light enough that if a twig did crack, uh, you know, crack behind you because a predator was approaching, you wanted to be able to hear it and to get up and to respond. So again, an advantageous adaptation and response in the short term, but in the long term, when we're deprived of sleep, we know that that impacts not just how we function and work and with our families, but it impacts our risk of hypertension, of obesity, and a host of other physical conditions. So I, w I was home um, the other night, uh, alone and you know my my partner's on a trip and we have like a big kind of overgrown green area outside i don't know exactly how to describe it it's a garden but there was some like raccoon fight happening outside during the evening and every time as i would start to go to sleep i would just hear like things rustling around out there and because it would like wake me when i was a little bit beneath rationality i'd be like oh is there somebody out there like i've got a baby in the house i've got and I was in this very heightened state of arousal. I couldn't go to sleep very easily for the rest of the night, but I was like listening to things and that I would totally normally ignore. And my nervous system was extremely finely tuned to them. And it's really, I had not thought about it this way until you were talking about it, but to imagine that the state of like acute loneliness is a little bit like being in that all the time, 
that heightened sensitivity, I can understand why that would be useful if there really was something out there. But because there wasn't, it just meant I couldn't sleep. I couldn't focus on anything else. I couldn't stop hearing things I didn't want to hear. Like, that's a that's a tough way to live. It's a really tough way to live. Uh, in some sense, it's like living in part looking over your shoulder all the time. But it's also living while doubting yourself all the time. Because what happens when people are chronically lonely is that they start to disconnect from themselves more. And what that means is that their own confidence in themselves, their belief that they fundamentally have worth and value starts to diminish. All of this is problematic because our foundation of connecting with other people is actually rooted in our ability to connect to ourselves. If we don't believe, for example, that we have worth and value, it's harder for us to reach out and connect to other people. We think, for example, why would they in fact want to connect with us You know, if we're not so worthy uh, and not desirable of spending time with? And so this is the downward spiral of loneliness that can become so challenging. Now you look at it from the outside and you might see somebody who seems to be aloof, for example, at parties. You might see somebody who seems to be socially awkward uh, or somebody who's cantankerous or grumpy. And you might, it might seem to you that, oh, that person doesn't wanna hang out with somebody or they have a personality issue or they're just grumpy. But these are all the different faces of loneliness. Yeah, something that uh, I was thinking about while you were saying that is also what a no means to you. So I remember uh, when growing up, I had a lot of trouble making friends. And I remember when I was at Santa Cruz, I also in particular, when I was in college, I just had a lot of trouble finding a friend group there. And as that wore on, as it really felt to me like it wasn't working, I became very nervous about asking people to do things because a no began to build into like a conception of myself, right? A no meant something to me that now, you know, with a with a much more solid social life, if I ask somebody to do something and they don't want to do it, it doesn't bother me at all, right? Oh, they're busy. Oh, you know, whatever. It's not my problem. It's their no. Uh, but in a world where you've operated under social scarcity, where you've begun to doubt whether other people like you, protecting yourself against those no's becomes really important because you're very vulnerable to your interpretation of them. And so one, it becomes harder to, to ask and harder to throw the line out, right? Uh, but also it becomes more important almost to be the person saying no first, right? So you can't yourself be rejected. That's exactly right. And that is one of the, the really challenging things about loneliness is that it increasingly shifts the focus inward toward you. So your explanation for what happens in the world starts to be more dependent or reliant or somehow connected uh, to to you. So if somebody says no to you, um, you think that it's because you're deficient in some way. You don't think about the reasons that they may have in their life uh, for saying no. Um, it's similarly true, like if you smile at somebody and they don't smile back, most likely the reason they didn't smile back is they could be just stunned that somebody actually smiled at a stranger or they could be uh, just caught off guard or they could be distracted by uh, a child who's ill at home or by something that just happened to them a few minutes ago, or maybe they didn't see you. But if you're in a state uh, where you're more focused on self, you will tell yourself, the reason they didn't smile back is because they think I'm unattractive or I'm dangerous or somehow that I'm not somebody worth connecting with. And that story, that narrative, that what's bad that happens around me is because of me, is a narrative that we get pulled deeper and deeper into when we struggle with loneliness. But all of this begins to, to speak to an interesting mystery about loneliness, which is that 
In the literature, there is this distinction between objective isolation and perceived isolation, that there's actually a pretty weak correlation between how many connections somebody has and how lonely they're going to feel. Uh, we were talking about this a bit in terms of your experience as Surgeon General, but for the evolutionary narrative you're offering here, it would seem that the question really is just, are there people around you? Are there people who can help you? But there, there seems to be some way in which we psychologically mediate the experience of loneliness such that one person can be existing in relative solitude and be very happy with it. And another person can exist amidst relative social plenty, right, in the middle of a city, see people all the time and be very and, and really be experiencing loneliness. And those two people have very different health outcomes. So how do you understand that objective versus perceived loneliness question or isolation question? Yeah, so it is the feeling that seems to matter more. But just to take a detour for a second, isolation does matter as well. Like when you look at people who are isolated, uh, they are actually often in greater risk uh, of adverse health outcomes. And some of that may be for practical reasons. When we don't have people around us, for example, we may not have somebody who can take us to the doctor when we're sick, who can help us out when there's a flood and when we need assistance. Um, so there's a, there are consequences to isolation. But the feeling of loneliness is... Ultimately, I think what affects more people and what matters, uh, perhaps even more. And th there are differences between our thresholds for how lonely we feel. And in some sense, this also tacks back to evolution and is, is useful. Imagine if in going back thousands of years, if we all had the exact same thresholds uh, for feeling lonely, some of us, would, maybe all of us would never, ever want to leave to actually go on a hunting trip to, to bring back food for the tribe because we couldn't bear being away. Uh, for 24 hours. On the other hand, it's useful to have some people who don't want to leave so that they can stay and always be there to protect uh, the tribe. So we have different thresholds for when our feeling of loneliness kicks in, and, and that's ultimately a good thing. But acknowledging that is important because it means that for someone having you know five or 10 people around them all the time doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to stave off loneliness versus for another person having just one or two people around them may be enough. What ultimately matters in both circumstances, though, are the quality of the connections. Even for our ancestors, just having people around them did not necessarily confer a survival advantage. Those had to be people with whom they could build trusted relationships, where they could rely on each other. And that, to some degree, required being vulnerable uh, you know, with each other, being able to say, hey, I can't fend off uh, attacks from predators entirely on my own. I can't ensure that my family has enough to eat every single day of the week. I need help uh, from others, and let's pool our resources and make that possible. What's the difference between loneliness and solitude? Well, solitude is a state of being alone that is actually not bothersome uh, to people, uh, whereas the state of loneliness actually perturbs us. It's not desirable. We see it as undesirable. It causes us pain. Solitude is a, re a really interesting concept um, to think ab about because I think that what has happened over time is, is really two big things with solitude. One is that our opportunities for solitude have diminished. Uh, when I would, for example, be driving uh, in medical school to different hospitals to do my rotations during third year, I was usually just driving in silence. I was alone with my thoughts. These days, when I walk to the bus stop or when I just, you know, go somewhere to the grocery store, I've got my headphones on, I'm listening to things, I'm catching up with somebody on the phone, I'm flipping through my inbox, you know, when I'm waiting for someone, you know, for breakfast or lunch. 
I might tell the white space in our lives has been increasingly filled, which has actually taken out the opportunities that many of us had for solitude. But the other thing that is, second thing that's happened over time is that our comfort with solitude has also diminished. Uh, and that I think is multifactorial. I think there's a part of our culture which is hyper-focused on efficiency, which tells us if we've got that 30 seconds at the bus stop, we may as well clear out our inbox. That if a friend is late, uh, we should just make a call, you know, to somebody who, who, you know, who called a couple of days ago and make sure we check that off of our box. Um, we have a, a focus on efficiency that often makes us suck up those moments of solitude. But it also means that when we are alone and when we don't have anything that we have to do, we can feel uncomfortable. We can feel jittery, like, gosh, there's something I should be doing. There's people I should be with. Um, this is a loss. I think ultimately for us as society, because important things happen in solitude. Solitude is where we work out problems, not just practical problems, like how do we pay our uh, bill or how do we get help for our parents, but just larger psychological challenges. You know, what did that argument that we had with a friend yesterday actually mean? The relationship that with our parent, with our mom or dad isn't as strong as we wanted to. Where's that coming from? Our child, you know, seems to be troubled. You know, how can we help them more? Like these are the things that we ponder, even often at a subconscious level, and work out during moments of solitude. But the fact that we have fewer of those moments and that we have been less become less comfortable with solitude, I think, ultimately, is detrimental to us. I want to hold on this solitude versus loneliness thing for a minute because it often looks to me and then internally feels to me like we sometimes have the worst of both worlds here. That on the one hand, we have the sim simulacra of social connection, that in those moments that we're not alone, that we're not having solitude, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're looking at Instagram, and we have, you know, thousands of friends or followers on on, on, on these things or hundreds. And so it, it seems like we are in connection. But all the research I've seen suggests that that stuff is not actually social connection in the way that solves some of the, the loneliness problems people have. In fact, it can make people feel more lonely to see everybody else going to parties and doing things and, you know, posting up their life events that they're not at or they're not being able to share. And on the other hand, you never have any time to rest. Um, like, you are neither getting, it's neither a nourishing social connection nor a kind of restorative solitude but a constant hum in between them that ultimately is very exhausting for people. That's right. I mean, there's a purpose of solitude in, in, in that it helps us restore and regenerate. And we do, in fact, I think, have the worst of both worlds. It's like, for example, instead of sleeping, if you do what many people do these days, which is you spend an hour or so flipping through your social media feed or just looking at uh, random news sites instead of sleeping, then what you end up feeling at the end is that uh, you've gotten less sleep, uh, but you haven't necessarily nourished yourself like in a, in a sustainable or powerful way. I think of it in many ways as the, as the junk, digital junk food in our lives, you know, that we have to root out. Now, like all junk food, does that mean that there's no ru uh, room for anything? Uh, no. Um, you know, yes, sometimes we, we do want to mindlessly, you know, scroll through our social media feed. That doesn't mean we're a bad person or that we're destined for loneliness. A lot of with a lot of these, though, the question is one of balance and how much time uh, are we spending on these on these media? For example, if you look at um, like 2015 data from Common Sense Media, looking at kids and how much time are adolescents spending uh, in front of screens for entertainment purposes, the numbers are around 6.5 hours a day uh, on average. 
That's a lot. That's not including time, uh, you know, that they're spending uh, in front of computers or screens for homework or other educational purposes. Um, that's a lot of time. Now, I think one of the dangers with this whole conversation on technology is that we can be lumped into, a, very quickly get into a black and white argument of thinking that, okay, all tech is bad, all social media is bad, we should, we should throw it out and try to revert uh, to a pre-social uh, media world. And I don't think that that's either possible or right. I think that there are circumstances where technology in general and social media in particular can help us build uh, stronger connections and can actually help address loneliness. But there are many cases where it does the exact opposite. And so the question is, what's happening when we're using social media? If you, I'll give you a few examples. If you have uh, someone, for example, who feels relatively isolated where they live, who might be, let's say, gay, who might be from a minority community, who might be from another community that feels marginalized, and they feel like they aren't people who have the same challenges or struggles as they do, who they can connect with, then sometimes actually being social media and technology in general can help bring those communities together and give people a source of support. And that can be immensely powerful. I've seen this happen for patients who are struggling with rare illness, for example, and who have found people online with similar illnesses who they can connect with and support. And the other thing, example I'll share with you where it can be immensely helpful is when we use social media as a bridge to offline connections, it can be incredibly helpful. Like if, if, if you, Ezra, are coming uh, to Washington, D.C., and you post you know, on your social media feeds, hey, I'm coming to DC, would love to have drinks with, with any friends who are around and in the area. Uh, and then you actually meet up with some of them. That's a very powerful way that social media can help you connect with friends. And that can be helpful. I've certainly used social media in those ways. But the flip side is that if we're using social media in a more passive way, if we're feeling lonely on a Friday night and we're scrolling through our Facebook feed thinking that seeing what our friends are doing is gonna help us feel better uh, and more connected to them, that is usually a, uh, a losing proposition because what happens is we end up we end up comparing their best days to our average days, and we always come up feeling short because people are often posting on social media about these pictures and experiences that make it seem that no one is lonely except us, that everyone is now a few people have problems except us, and that people are living these glamorous extroverted lives, and that hides an important truth, which is that many. Many people uh, in the country and around the world are in fact struggling with loneliness. Yezra Klanja will be back after a short break. It seems to me there's a lot more conversation in the media and in politics about loneliness. As Surgeon General, you focus on loneliness. I believe that um, the UK has uh, created a minister of loneliness. That There's a much more, it seems, a sense that this is a, a problem of our age. And my understanding is that the, the the data on whether or not we're becoming much more lonely is more mixed um, and more incremental. C- could you talk about how we measure loneliness and, and whether or not we know if it's going up? It's a great question. And this is an area where I wish we had as much and as high quality research as we do in other areas like diabetes and hypertension. But the truth is we, we, we have less to go on. Let me tell you what what we see, what the data seems to indicate so far. So, two points: one on how prevalent or common is loneliness, and second, is it increasing or not? When it comes to how common loneliness is, this to me is the is the biggest concern because whether or not you uh, subscribe to the fact that loneliness is increasing or not, most of the studies seem to indicate that it is far more common than we think. So take, for example, uh, a 2018 study uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which showed that 
approximately 22% of adults in the United States describe feeling often or always lonely. Uh, that same study found that a similar percentage in the UK uh, you know, ascribed to the same feelings of loneliness. Australia has found that about 25% of their adult population uh, is struggling with loneliness. If you look at Italy, about 13% of people uh, in Italy uh, who are adults say that they have no one to ask for, uh, for help. Um, on and on, as you go from country to country, many, many countries are finding that there are a large portion of the population uh, that in fact is struggling with loneliness. And just to put this in context, if you take the 22% figure from adults that the Kaiser Family Foundation found, that's over 55 million people. That's almost double the number of people who have diabetes in the United States. That's more than the number of people who smoke uh, in the United States. So these are not small numbers. And there has been a lot of variation in some of these numbers. You know, I'm giving you numbers that are actually somewhat at the lower end uh, of what other studies have found. But even if you take the conservative approach, they're high. Now, the more thorny question is, is loneliness increasing or not? And I think the simple answer is that we don't 100% know. Because the studies that are out there that indicate that loneliness is dramatically increasing, um, some of them have been done in ways that make it hard to make an apples to apples comparison. They may be looking at different, uh, slightly different populations. They may be using slightly different scales to measure loneliness. Some of them are counting how many people even say that they're just sometimes lonely. And nearly all of us probably feel sometimes lonely here and there, at least if we're willing to admit it. So there are some thorny um, issues around figuring out whether it's truly increasing. Now, John Cassiopo, who's one of the, the giants in the field of loneliness, who studied it and you know, for years at the University of Chicago and made it uh, a serious issue uh, of scientific inquiry. Uh, you know, he, his belief was that looking at the data overall, there probably is a, has been a modest increase in the amount of loneliness that we're experiencing. But I think that the, the reality is that it's hard to make very firm claims uh, that loneliness is dramatically increasing in society today. I, I was really struck looking at some of the data by also the way it varies culturally. So you, you were talking about that KFF survey, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation survey, and uh, that seems to me, if I'm looking at the same one as you, this economist Kaiser Family Foundation survey, it was uh, cross-cultural, and it found that 22% of Americans reported always or often feeling lonely, 23% in Britain. But, and this surprised me, only 9% in Japan. Because in Japan, you often hear these stories of the elderly dying alone and no, nobody knowing, that there's a, you know, the, the hikamori, you know, that Japan is a, a, a culture that is certainly in the media believed to be struggling with a deep form of loneliness and, and social atomization. Um, you know, you'll get these stories like nobody has sex in Japan anymore, which clearly on some level isn't true, but but is speaking about some unusual trends there. And yet it looks like in the data, fewer people report feeling lonely. I'm curious if you what you think of that. It's a great question, and you're right to bring up cultural factors here, because how we talk about loneliness matters, what language we use to ask people about it matters. And regardless of what language we use, cultural traditions and experiences and beliefs influence how comfortable people are just even admitting, frankly, that they're lonely. Um, there are many people, for example, in traditional cultures, you know, some of which my parents are from, for whom admitting loneliness is like saying my family is not serving their purpose, that I'm somehow disrespecting my family by saying that even though they love me, I'm not, I'm still lonely. So many people would not, would not subscribe to that, uh, even if they do in fact feel lonely. So I think we are limited often in understanding uh, how lonely people are in some of these surveys. If you look at the biases that these surveys have, I think they tend to skew 
uh, in a negative direction, meaning I think they underestimate how much loneliness is actually out there. You know, years ago, uh, some folks at UCLA realized this uh, and realized that even if you use the word lonely in a survey, it makes it less likely someone is gonna actually admit that they're lonely. Uh, so they, the folks at UCLA developed what's called the UCLA Loneliness Scale, which has now been used for a number of years in reliable surveys. And it's a validated scale that helps to assess people's loneliness, but actually doesn't even use the word loneliness at all in the series of questions that it asks. So I think we're, we should be we should look at these numbers, I think, with some amount of skepticism, but a skepticism that tells us that they are likely underestimates of what people are actually feeling. I, I want to drill in on that point for a second because I came across a quote from an interview you did that I thought was very profound on this point, and it matters both for the question of big picture survey data, but also for the question of people asking for help in their everyday lives. And you said that saying that I am lonely was saying I wasn't worthy of being loved and no one wants to feel that. That to admit loneliness is not to say I have a condition like diabetes or a cold. It is to say something about me and how the world views me that makes it very, very difficult for people, one, to admit it, but two, to actually get help for it. Because then you're, you're asking for help at the same time that you're admitting you're not a person people would want to help. That's right. And, and this, is, this is what is so powerful and I think so tragic about loneliness is there's a deep, deep sense of shame that comes with it, where many people, myself included, uh, have felt in their lives that their loneliness is a reflection of their, their worth. Um, I never, when I was a child, told my parents that I was lonely. I didn't tell them because I was ashamed. I felt that telling them was saying I wasn't likable at school, that some deep level I wasn't worthy of being loved. And I didn't want to admit that to them. And Really, I didn't want to admit that to myself. And that's why you find that on these surveys and in larger conversations that people often don't want to admit they're lonely because the implications of it for their self-worth are really quite profound and quite disturbing. Now, I saw this firsthand when I was traveling around the country as Surgeon General and having these conversations. Like I would never walk into a room and have the experience of people just raising their hands saying, hi, I'm Ezra, I'm lonely. Hi, I'm Vivek, I'm lonely. That never happened. What usually happened was more that people raised their hand to speak about the challenges that they were facing with a child, you know, who was dealing with addiction, with uh, obesity in their family and the consequences of it, with violence in their neighborhoods and not being sure how to protect their children. But then slowly, I was realizing that the edges of stories about loneliness would start to peek through. So then I started surfacing them more intentionally. I started asking people, so I want, to, I want to think about loneliness. I want to talk about loneliness more. Like, can you help me understand if this has been a challenge for you and your community? And after an initial awkwardness, it was like these floodgates open where it seemed like everybody had a story about loneliness. You know, as a Surgeon General, I had to talk about a whole range of issues, Ezra, from, you know, Ebola and Zika to issues like violence and e-cigarettes and smoking. But there was not a single issue that I found resonated as deeply with people as the topic of emotional well-being and more specifically loneliness. And that struck me, like whether I was talking to a member of Congress or somebody in a small fishing village in Alaska or somebody in a small town in Oklahoma, it was this issue uh, that people wanted to talk about. Uh, and it was really striking. I, I found that it was often harder for for men uh, to talk about this. I remember uh, doing a talk once here in DC 
And in a one hour conversation, I think I mentioned loneliness for like 60 seconds of it. It's all anybody wanted to talk about when they came up to me afterward though. They didn't care about the other 15 of my minutes, what I said, whatever. But the loneliness part really struck them. And this one woman in particular, I remember came to me and she said, said, I wanna thank you for, for raising some awareness about this and, and legitimizing this feeling because my husband has struggled with loneliness for years and just has not felt comfortable talking about it or saying anything to anyone. And then she happened to move about six inches to her right. And then I saw that standing behind her that whole time was in fact her husband. And he wasn't speaking because he had tears rolling down his eyes, his face. And he was just, he was just so emotional. And examples like that were so common, you know, and I, I've, so what I found and what I've realized since then is that, you know, as, as a species, we have a fundamental need to connect with each other. And that need and the hunger for connection has not gone away. Even though we have many people who are lonely and many more who may be lonely, but aren't comfortable saying it, the need they have for connection is still there. And I worry that what's happening is that not only are we seeing the adverse consequences of loneliness show up when it comes to our health, but our inability to not just connect with each other, but have conversations about connection is impairing how we're performing in the workplace, how our kids are doing in school, and even uh, how our public dialogue and our politics is unfolding. So something in what you're saying there, I think that there's a belief that maybe loneliness is either a side effect or even the price we pay for modernity and freedom. That you can have these communities that have a lot less loneliness, like you'll often hear the Amish brought up in this context, um, but that they're patriarchal, they're less free, they have less space for people to, to, to go and geographically disperse and follow their dreams. And there's like this idea that modern liberal societies are rootless in a way that creates loneliness, but also in a way that creates freedom. Um, do you think that the kind of loneliness we have here is is somehow structurally built into, into, into modern life, into this place where we're moving further away from our families and being able on the one hand to seek out our dreams, but on the other hand to, to lose touch with the people who, who are most closely connected to us? I do think that there are structural contributors to loneliness and many of them exist and have been, I think, building for years in modern society. But I don't think that they're inevitable. You know, in the, you know, in the book that I'm working on right now, I in fact look at, I look at what I call third bowl societies or this idea that- Third bowl? Third bowl, yeah. So imagine two bowls, you know, one of which is uh, of, of limited depth, but really broad, and another which is really deep, uh, but fairly small. I think about traditional, more collectivist societies um, in, in as the second bowl, if you will. The, the one, they allow you to go really deep in terms of your connection with each other, um, but there are constraints on, on who you can be. Um, for example, the society in which my parents grew up in uh, in India was one where you know families and communities were very tightly knit, but there wasn't a whole lot of tolerance if you wanted to make a countercultural decision like not get married, for example, in your late teens or early twenties, uh, or if you were gay, for example, that was also not acceptable to those communities. And if in, if you fit into either of those circumstances, then the feelings of loneliness could be quite profound. On the other hand, we, what we live in today in modern society is a bowl that is quite broad and it allows people of many different individual expressions to be able to coexist. But the structures that ensure that the connections are really deep between people uh, have eroded over time. And so the question that I have been thinking about is, 
can we build a third bowl? One that is broad, that respects our individual choices and liberties and identities, but that it also has structural components that allow our relationships to, to be deep. And what I mean by that isn't that there isn't individual choice that's involved in whether we're, we build a connected life or not. There absolutely is. But just as we see with the nutrition, the environment around us and the structures in which we live influence our choices heavily. And so in the case of nutrition, for example, I can tell people what healthy food is, but if I, uh, if I have people who live in a neighborhood where there isn't any healthy food around and in their workplace cafeteria, there's only unhealthy food, and in their child's school cafeteria, there's only unhealthy food, the likelihood is they're gonna eat unhealthy food. And similarly, if I live in a society where people uh, just structurally don't get to interact with each other uh, because everyone is in cars all the time and because people live in, in, in isolated con you know, built buildings or homes with big yards and fences between them, uh, then the chances are people are gonna interact less. Uh, than there otherwise would have. And there's, so there's a tension here between convenience, uh, in a sense, and culture, and the interaction that we want. Uh, I remember the day I learned that we could get uh, groceries online, uh, and I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, this is gonna save us all this time. It's gonna increase our efficiency. Um, it's gonna be amazing. And you know, we do get groceries delivered from time to time, but I realized that there was a cost with that that I hadn't factored in, uh, which is that those trips to the grocery store were times when I would have like some interaction, even if it was 30 seconds with somebody at the cash register who I hadn't met before, but who was just interesting. Sometimes I would feel see familiar faces in the store and that would just give me a sense of comfort and familiarity and make it feel a little bit more like my neighborhood. Those trips to the grocery store were also moments where browsing through the aisles, it was, I wasn't, you know, dialed into my inbox. I wasn't talking to people on the phone all the time. It was a different type of interaction and closer to the solitude that I found I often craved. And now that was gone. So with modernity, I think what we have, we have gained a lot, uh, but we have also, I think, failed to account for the cost uh, that we have paid in the process. And so what I'm, uh, you know, interested in and thinking about is how can we, build in the structures that will allow us to create greater depth uh, in, in our relationships, which is both a structural challenge and a cultural challenge. And how can we do that while also ensuring that we do not lose uh, a focus on ensuring that people have freedom of identity and individual expression? I would not want ever want us to go back to a scenario where we constrained people's core identities and their individual expression in the interest of having them be part of a cohesive group. It's such an interesting, that, that's such an interesting way to put that, that there's a, a trade-off between efficiency and these kinds of connections. And you're just making me reflect on some some things in my own life. I, I, I love your example of, of grocery delivery, um, which I also, I also get groceries delivered and had not thought about it having that effect. But when I, I take out here, uh, a, I don't drive to work, I, I take the BART. And I actually have a friend in town who I, who I don't see socially really that often, just, you know, because of the way our, our lives are. But I actually see him every couple of weeks on the BART, and we end up taking it in together. And, like, that keeps that relationship going, right? That's like a kind of like, you know, like every month or two touch where we spend, you know, kind of accidentally 30 minutes chatting on the train. And it's happened with some other people, too. And I don't tend to think about the value of those very much. Um, I've heard this actually about having pets, and particularly for for older people, that one thing about having pets is that it gets you walking around your neighborhood, which if you don't have a pet, and particularly if you live in a car-centric culture, otherwise you don't. 
And you see people walking around your neighborhood, you run into people, you are reminded that it is a neighborhood, like in the old Jane Jacobs sense, um, that's part of what that, that's part of what gives you those those ties to a place. Uh, it's such a it's such an interesting and, and a little bit of an unnerving thing uh, to imagine it that it is like our quest for efficiency that is taking away one of the things that is the central contributor to whether or not we feel satisfied in our lives. I mean, I think so many of us quietly believe that the way, the reason efficiency is important is that we will get more done. And if we get more done, we are going to ultimately feel more satisfied, more connected, more just good about life, right? Because like we'll be successful. Um, but I think everything we know is that people feel good about life because they feel connected. And if there's a direct trade-off there, that's a pretty severe trade-off that, you know, we we don't, there's no warning that comes up on the app. Yeah, gosh, there's the quest for greater efficiency, I think, is a is a dangerous one. Not that we shouldn't seek efficiency. When we do it in the right way, it can actually free up time for us to spend with the people that we love. But the challenge is what do we do with that extra time? And what often happens is that we get caught in a cycle of a never-ending uh, sort of desire for increased output and for doing more and more and more. And so we we take the gains of efficiency and we use them to move the goalposts, if you will, on what our work output should be. And there's never an end, you know, to how much mm-hmm. to our ambition and to what, you know, we can do on the work side. And so, you know, efficiency is is good if we have a, fo- if our priorities are clear in wanting to put time saved into relationships. You know, I've had the privilege of caring for many patients who have uh, been in their dying days and have cared for many of them as they have passed away in the hospital. And when I think back on those extraordinary people and the conversations I was blessed to have with them, when I think about their reflections and what mattered to them in life, very few people talked about the fact that the promotions they got were what were really exciting or talk about the fact that you know they amassed a follower base on Twitter that was incredible and that made life fulfilling. Um, yeah, but the, maybe they didn't have that many followers. <laughs> I mean, I, I have two and a half million followers on Twitter. <laughs> so maybe so I expect that when I <laughs> even for Sorry. you, Ezra, I suspect that won't be what you what you tick off at the end of life. Probably not. But but what they did talk about were relationships, the relationships that they enjoyed the relationships that they regretted not putting more time into, um, the relationships they wished uh, they had built. It was relationships that people talked about at the end of of life. And there are a few experiences that are more clarifying than the end of our lives. Now, if you ask people who are not dealing with an end-of-life situation, what do you value in life? They will almost always put people at or near the top of their list. So I think our problem isn't that we don't value people on the face of it. I think the challenge is that there is a gap in our stated values and our lived values. So we may, and I'm a good example of this because I deeply value the people in my life. I would do anything for my family and for for my close friends. I would do anything for my my children and, and they are the most important relationships to me. But when I really ask myself the hard questions about am I, what am I, where am I putting my time? Am I truly prioritizing? Because if our time is a measure of our priorities, and if we vote with our, our time, then am I putting enough time into those relationships? If I'm honest with myself, the answer for a good chunk of my life has been, no, there's a gap. You know, and that uh, even though I say I value people, that I'm actually, my work is, has been 
uh, a higher priority at many times in my life um, than it otherwise has been, than it otherwise should be. And I think we 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 in, we kind of come up with rationalizations for this. We say, well, you know, early in life we've got to prioritize work so we can get ahead and we can be successful, and then we can set a foundation for family. Or you know, opportunities only come up once. You know, you've got to seize them. Uh, or if we work hard now, we'll set a great example for our kids, and then they'll be able to have a happy life afterwards. We come up with many reasons as to why we should, in a practical way, like prioritize work above relationships or other things above relationships. But I will tell you that not through my own experience, but just having um, been blessed with a window into so many people's lives who have dealt with, uh, you know, with you know illness and with passing away, and who have reflected on their whole lives. That few of those rationalizations end up being fulfilling uh, to people at the end of life. What they ultimately see is that it matters how much time we put into relationships, whether we're in our teens, our twenties, our thirties, our forties, or at the end of life. It matters, and there's no and the time and the, when we defer the time that we put into relationships, we are we're deferring happiness and fulfillment, uh, and ultimately what makes life most meaningful. Do you think it's because for a lot of people implicitly deep down, we make those decisions because we believe other people will value us if we are successful in our work? Absolutely. That like, I, I feel like if you scratch people's addiction to work like deeply enough, I mean, once you get past a certain amount of being able to provide for your family and for yourself, there is this, there gets to be this belief that work is very good at creating a kind of measurable sense of worth. And a measurable sense of worth doesn't really matter because we hold it, but because the world holds it, right? And then if you are afraid of being lonely, there is some, and fundamentally afraid of death, right? Because, I mean, evolutionarily, that's what you're saying, you know, loneliness is protecting us against, uh, that the measurable sense of worth conferred by work is a way of comforting ourselves that we have worth such that other people are going to want to be around us. But you know, you you mistake your finger for the moon on that one, you know, the, the the pointing for the thing you're pointing at, that you end up in a place where you end up neglecting the relationships the work is supposed to get you for the work that is supposed to get you the relationships. That's right. You know, I think intrinsically on our own, I think we have evolved to value relationships and to put time into them. But from a very young age, we're taught a different set of values. We're taught that we've got to work hard so that we can make money and make a good name for ourselves. We're taught, uh, you know, that we've got to work hard and be successful. Although what defines success is often not people, but output and promotions and wealth. Um, we're taught these things from a very, very young age and not even always directly, but through the movies that we see and the advertisements that we consume and the, what, the people who are held up as role models, uh, you know, in the media and even by our own parents and friends. And over time, we, we absorb all of these messages and we want to live up to those standards uh, that are contained in those messages, standards that tell us that even though we might say that we you know, prioritize people, that those who put all of their heart uh, and their effort into work are to be lauded and to be applauded. I think that there's a, a fundamental flaw in that, that we haven't fully come to grips with and haven't fully addressed uh, in our own lives. And that's related in many ways to the other myth, I think, which is the myth of the individual versus the collective that is quite prominent, particularly in our country, in the United States, where we we like to hold up individual heroes. You know, the you know, a football team may win, you know, the Super Bowl, but we want to know who is the most valuable player, like on the team. Uh, a business may succeed and 
garner a trillion dollar valuation in the public markets, but we want to know who is the CEO who made it all happen. We, we seek to focus on the individual when looking at the path to success. And that's the story that we teach young people early on is that it is your hard work and your hard work alone uh, that can lead to success. But that that is a dangerous myth because it sells us something that's ultimately not true and something that can set us uh, searching in a direction that I think only leads to frustration uh, and to pain, which is that when we, the truth is when we look at these stories of the teams that win a Super Bowl or a World Series uh, or the NBA championship, when we look at uh, amazing companies that have been built, you know, we know in, in reality, if we dig deep, that those are collective efforts. Um, we know, for example, that World War II wasn't won by a single individual. We know that the civil rights movement, as much as MLK is held up as an extraordinary leader and deservedly so, that that was not built and won uh, and hasn't been fully won yet, to be clear on that. But that wasn't built and progress wasn't made uh, because of a single individual. And so I think if we really look at loneliness, what to me is fascinating about the topic of loneliness and social connection is it forces us to ask, to ask deeper cultural questions about the society in which we live, about how we raise our own children, and most importantly, about the beliefs that we ourselves hold, which when we dig down into it, some of them are actually not intrinsic beliefs. This idea that, that success is about how well we do in work is not an evolutionary belief. It's a societal belief that we have taken on that was imprinted on us so early in many of our upbringings that we came to see it as just part of who we were. But the reality is that it's been layered on us. And so part of this is about peeling back those layers and asking the deeper question at, it, at its heart, at our heart, who are we? What were we designed to be? How were we designed to live? And everything that I have seen from the research to the stories that I've heard, to the reflections that I've, I've done have led me to one inescapable conclusion here, which is that we were, we were meant to live and to exist in relationship to each other, that our relationship with each other uh, is one of our greatest sources uh, of not only benefit in terms of survival, but of fulfillment. And that at some fundamental level, we need each other. As much as we like to hold up the powerful narrative of the individual, and as much as I do think there's a role for individual effort and individual responsibility, uh, at its heart, we are beings that were designed to be interdependent, and that is when we are at our best. I'd also note that if you want to see uh, a bunch of broken marriages and weak, deep family relationships and lonely people, go look at superstar athletes and decorated CEOs. Uh, I've been I've been around profiles a lot of those folks, and it doesn't always. There's a lot of loneliness and a lot of pain in in those personal lives. Um, as we kind of come to a close here, I wanted to talk about something that that you've said on this topic about what is a path out of loneliness that I think is very much in, in in alignment with where you've taken the conversation, which is you've talked about the fact that the best thing a lonely person can do is often do something for someone else. That one of the paradoxes of loneliness is that it feels like something that you need other people to reach in and pull you out of, when often you need to reach out to other people to pull out of it. And that I think that's very unintuitive from inside the experience of loneliness, that you should be extending yourself to others, not for others to come hang out with you, but actually to help, to be involved in your community, to, to volunteer. 
Um, but it's very powerful. I've seen it in people in my own life um, who've been struggled a lot with loneliness and spent years working on suicide hotlines and years working in homeless shelters. And that's been a real source of healing and purpose. Um, but I'd love to, to hear you talk a bit about that, about, about kind of social connection and giving as a path out of a place where you often feel that nobody's been giving to you. Yeah, it, it, it ends up being one of the more interesting and I think counterintuitive uh, lessons from loneliness, that the path out of it is actually to help other people. That service, it turns out, uh, is one of the great cures, if you will, uh, for, for loneliness. I think this is true for at least three reasons. When we serve other people, we do build a meaningful connection with them because that service is often based on generosity, on kindness or compassion, and people respond to that. In fact, I think they're even hungry for, or for it now uh, than they perhaps were a half century ago. The second thing, though, that happens is we we shift our focus from ourselves to someone else. And one of the real challenges with loneliness is that it actually tilts and distorts our focus to be much more centered around ourself uh, in ways that can be profoundly destructive. Uh, but one of the things that can yank us out uh, of that focus and 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 shift us is actually the act of serving someone else. But the third thing that it does is service reaffirms our sense of worth. Like if we can contribute something to someone's lives, then we must not be entirely worthless. We must not be entirely unlovable. Uh, it gives us a concrete experience that reaffirms to us that we have value. And those these three things are extraordinarily important, but can be captured in a very simple experience of service. When I say service, that doesn't mean that we have to take two weeks off and and join Habitat for Humanity you know, in, in Latin America and build a home for a, a number of families. Although if you do that, I'm sure it would be an extraordinarily powerful experience. But the experience of service can be something as simple uh, as helping somebody at work you know, who's having a difficult time. It could be as simple as helping a, a stranger on the subway, a parent who might be struggling with their two kids you know, to get everything together and to get off uh, the train. Uh, there are, if we look for it, so many opportunities to serve people. And I think it helps us if we are even broader in how we think about service. I think about service as the act of giving love toward others. And that could be love in the form of generosity, kindness, empathy. If you think about it in that way, this simple act of smiling at somebody is an act of service. It is actually rare in big cities for people to have the experience of being conversed with in the elevator or smiled at on the street or in the subway. So much so that if somebody does it to you, it can actually take you aback at times and surprise you. But what the research shows, which is really interesting, is that even when a stranger makes eye contact with somebody who's walking down uh, the street in the opposite direction, that eye contact helps in a measurable way the other person to feel more connected. They may not always know why, uh, but it shows up you know, on studies that it uh, results in a considerable uptick in, in connection. We underestimate how simple acts of outreach and expression can have a profound impact on someone else, especially when they come from a genuine place. And to me, that's actually what is ultimately heartening about the challenge of addressing loneliness is that, number one, we are not asking people in building connected lives to become someone that they are not to transform in something that is foreign or other, we're asking, asking people to return to who we all really are, which is beings that were designed for love and for connection. But the other thing that's encouraging me to about this 
is that the solution ultimately to loneliness lies within each of us. We don't need to have a special medical degree or expensive medical equipment or a new pill to solve the problem of loneliness. What we need is ourselves, the courage to step up and to serve others, to be compassionate and kind toward others, and just as important, if not more so, to be compassionate toward ourselves. I guess it's a beautiful place to end. So let me ask you the question we always used to close, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? So three books that I've loved, that I've given out to people as presents a lot over the years, two are old and one is relatively recent. Tuesdays with Maury, a book that really inspired me uh, when I was in medical school and um, one that really pushed me to reflect deeply on what matters in life. Uh, the second book is called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh, a book that was a, an important part of my own spiritual transformation uh, and one that um, pushed me to think more deeply about what does spirituality mean, uh, not in a religious context, but in the context of a force that can help connect us more deeply with ourselves and with other people. And the third book is Dear Madam President by Jennifer Palmieri. Uh, Jennifer Palmieri was the communications director, director for President Obama in his second term. She's a extraordinary human being and writes um, about her experiences um, and reflections on the lessons that she hopes the, that young girls and, and young women um, will take to heart uh, as they think about the prospect of becoming uh, the first female president uh, of the United States of America. And it's filled with with beautiful reflections. And I, I remember when I read it all in one sitting, I just remember closing the book and realizing that my my eyes had welled up uh, with, with tears. And I remember thinking, I want my daughter and my son to read this. This is a, a book that both men and women, that boys and girls, I think would benefit from. Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ezra. What a, what a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you to Dr. Murthy um, for a, a credible, I think, conversation. Um, and thank you to all of you for being here. I hope if you are lonely, um, it made you feel a little bit more seen. Or if you have people around you who are lonely, uh, it helps you see them. I'm not pretending a podcast conversation will solve anything, but but hopefully it can help a little bit. Uh, few of us are as alone in our experiences as it can feel. And something, at least that I try to think about a lot on loneliness is how much it can make. I mean, it, the fundamental thing of loneliness, right, is sometimes the reality and sometimes the illusion that we're alone. Uh, but trying to step out of that and at least seeing that it doesn't have to be that way can have some power of its own. Um, thank you, of course, to Rajay Karma for researching and doing a lot of work to make this episode the episode that it was. Thank you to Jeffrey Geld, my producer. Uh, you can always email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And The Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. 